Welcome to the Impact Church Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us as we seek to establish Christ followers who live in obedience to God's Word and make an impact in their community and the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Pastor Brad continues in his sermon series called Return and Rebuild as he shares how God draws our hearts back to himself when we repent and seek his face. Are you ready to make an impact for Christ? The time is now. things new. Welcome Impact Church. We're going to dive right in and get going because we just started in a sermon series last week that's called Return and Rebuild and we're going expositionally through the book of Ezra and we got the context last week so if you missed that message you really need to go back and listen to that. And I know I say that all the time, but you really have to go back and get this one so you can understand where this book of Ezra is coming from and what's the context that's leading into this. Because we saw last week in the very first verse, it alluded um, to the word of Jeremiah. And it said, so that the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah would be fulfilled. So we had to go back and look at Jeremiah and what was uh, in that. So basically what we saw through chapter 25 and we went through chapter 29, which we'll touch again here, is we saw that the Israelites were being held captive in Babylon for sin because they had turned against God, they had turned against his ways, they had worshipped idols and gone astray, so they had been in captivity. So we got the context last week, so now we're going to start to see in this, still in this first verse and in another verse in this first chapter, where the Lord started to stir in their hearts. You see, I want to tell you today that when the Lord calls you back, when, when the, the Lord is ready for you to return and, and to be restored and renewed, He is always going to stir in your heart first. And that's where you or I will have an opportunity to respond, to reject Him once again and stay on the path of unrighteousness and turn from Him, or to submit ourselves and surrender in repentance to Him and His ways and return to God. And it always starts with Him, the Lord, stirring on our heart. Make no mistake, you cannot come back to Jesus on your own. You cannot do it. It takes the Spirit of God stirring in your heart and moving and through His strength to bring you back. So that's what we're going to see today because the title of the message today is Burning an Empire. Burning an Empire. Because what we're going to see is as the Lord stirs, He is looking for us to walk away from an empire, if you will, of sin, of pride, of arrogance, of everything that had captivated us before. He's looking for us to turn away from that so He can burn it down. Because he wants to, to get rid of the old and bring on the new. So today we're going to look at Ezra and what God has for us. And I was looking for a, an, an introduction. And the Lord just brought me to something. And it was, it was just a, a thing where I could just see Jesus. And if you remember in, uh, from history and stuff years ago, there was a, a great Chicago fire back in 1871. It started actually on the evening of October 8th of that year. And while they don't know how it started, they know where it started. It started in this unfortunate couple's barn named Patrick and Catherine O'Leary right in the middle of town. And this fire spread, and of course I'm sure firefighters and everybody was trying to put it out, but ultimately it burned for over a day and it was not put out until rain quenched it. Man, can you imagine being responsible or feeling responsible for a famous fire that burned most of a city? Because by the time it was done, it burned around an area that was four miles long and one mile wide. It destroyed 17,500 buildings and uh, 73 miles total of street. 90,000 people were left homeless by the fire. And that maybe doesn't sound like a lot now, but in comparison, that was a third of the population of Chicago at that time. To put it in perspective, now that would be somewhere around a million people would be left homeless if you had the same ratio. Huge, devastating fire. 300 people lost their lives. But here's what captivated me. As I was reading and just kind of looking at this, of course, we know this fire was was uh, what took Horatio Spafford, you remember that guy, who ended up writing the hymn, It Is Well, 
right, after he had lost his uh, daughters in a, in a uh, ship accident. But before that, he had just purchased some property in the spring of 1871 in Chicago, and then less than a half a year later, this fire burnt most of it down. All right, so you might remember him from that fire as well. But here's what captivated me. In 1956, all right, some 80 years later, whatever the, the number is, they built something in the exact spot where this fire started. Right where this barn was, they built the Chicago Fire Academy right where Mr. and Mrs. O'Leary's barn once stood. So now this place where the fire once started and destroyed now is a fire academy that trains firefighters to go and put down the devastation that destroyed that city so many years ago. Guys, I don't know about you, but when I read that and, and I saw that, I was like, Jesus, that's what you do. And I'm not talking about just the, the physical fire academy building being put on this place. I'm talking about in our life. That's what God does with us. What Satan comes in and, and uses for destruction and to destroy, God will rebuild because you'll see this city that was rebuilt and it was rebuilt better because it was rebuilt with buildings that were more fire resistant where it wouldn't burn down to the extent that it did before. So it was rebuilt better. And then in the heart, right in ground zero, if you will, where the fire started, a place was put in for redemption, for restoration. Guys, that's what Jesus does with us. So oftentimes, right in the, in the scars, in the battle that sins cause, right where it started, God's going to put his spirit in us and give us a desire to follow him. And then this is what he does. He's going to use our scars. He's going to use our pain, the destruction that, that sin and Satan in the world had caused. And he's going to use us, if we'll let him, to help others. That's the beautiful picture of the gospel. God wants to use you in a way that affects eternity. I want you to think about that. So as we look at this, these Israelites and as we look at our own life, this return, this call back to Christ is so much bigger than just about you. It's about his glory and it's about building his kingdom. And that's what God wants us so bad to come back to him for. Because he wants to use us and restore and renew us. So today, we're going to look at what that looks like when the Lord starts to stir in our heart. And then what it looks like when we turn to him and let him burn down an empire, an empire of sin and destruction, and then restore us and rebuild us with everything he intended us to have in our lives. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Dear Lord, we love you. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and Lord, we thank you for today, Lord, because we know your word never returns void, Lord, and we're here to praise you, to worship you, because you are holy, you are just, you are mighty, and you're worthy of our praise, and Lord, we come here today hungry and thirsty for you, to seek your face, Lord, not just your hand, but your face, to know you, to surrender our lives to you to hear from your word so that we can be shaped and molded more into the image of Christ. Father, so that we can return ourselves to you to get rid of anything that's in us that's not of you and that's of this world and that's of ourselves. Father, that we could be a light that shines brighter for Christ here in this world that's lost and searching and hopeless. So Father, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would use us in a mighty way, and we give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, so you can turn with me if you've got your Bible with you. Turn with me to the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. And we're going to be in chapter 1, and we're gonna actually going to look at two verses today, verse 1 and then verse 5, all right? So I want to read first, first verse 1, and then we'll read verse 5. The Word of God says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. I want you to highlight, circle, whatever you got to do, that word stirred. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. All right. So there's the first verse. Skip down with me to verse 5. 
after he had made this proclamation, which we'll catch up more with next week, he said this in verse 5. He said, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved. I want you to highlight circle moved. With all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. We get two very distinct pictures there of God moving in people's hearts. God was stirring. God was moving in the hearts of people. Let me ask you this. Have you felt the Lord stir in your heart? Have you felt him really move you and stirring you, drawing you to something different? Really, I mean, I'm talking about a, a spiritual move. I'm just talking about, well, if, yeah, I feel the Lord kind of want me to, to, to take this new job or this, that, and the other. Okay, all right, whatever. I'm talking about have you felt the Lord move you spiritually to something different, to a higher and more deeper level of intimacy with him? That's what I'm talking about. Have you felt that? You should have, especially if you call yourself a follower of Christ. Because here's the truth of that. That stirring and that moving happens more than just once. And so many people miss that. They think, oh, well, yeah, the Lord moved one time, and I came forward at the altar, and I weep, mourned, and wailed, and I, you know, surrendered my life to Christ. I think I prayed that prayer anyway that pastor said to do, and then I, you know, I just went on about my life, and I ain't felt nothing since. That's a dangerous place to be if that's the only stirring, the only moving of the Lord you've ever felt. Because I want to tell you today, what we're going to see is true repentance is more than remorse. Man, it's easy to feel sad or, or, or just remorseful over our, our sin or what's gone wrong in our life. But repentance is a changed behavior that's led through the Spirit of God in our life. So that if you're truly in Christ, God leads you a new direction. And some of us are more hard-headed than others and, and follow through that sanctification process slower than others. Don't elbow your husbands right now. All right? But the Lord is constantly going to be moving and pulling us toward Him. So we see the Lord stirring. So I want to go back and, and see where did all this start? And we're going to touch on something we touched on last week. And that's in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 12. So turn with me to the book of Jeremiah. And I want to put this verse back in front of us because it's an extremely huge promise that God was making to his people at this time. And it's a promise that we can take hold of and apply today. Jeremiah 29 we're going to read verses 10 through 12, all right? For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. There's the Lord moving and stirring. You get that? Cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. It says, I will be found by you after that. What a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful verse and a promise. And I don't know if you caught that in verse 13, because I actually said verse 12, and I actually read through 13, so forgive me. But it says in verse 13, it says, you will seek me and you will find me. Guys, that's a promise that you can take to the bank. And I want you to know that up front. As we look at how God stirs and moves, that when we... You and I truly seek him with all our heart, we will find him. So many people say, well, I tried to go to church and I, I tried to follow the Lord for a while, but man, I just, it just didn't change. Nothing really happened. Were you really seeking God? Were you seeking his face or were you just seeking his hand? You see, because there's a difference we have a whole lot of people in this world that want to seek the hand of God. They want to just see God move and do things in their life and give them blessings. But they don't seek his face and they don't seek out who he really is and what he wants to do in their life. Because seeking his face requires us to be surrendered, to give up our will for his. So we see through this promise 
that there is God moving, stirring, because he knows the plans he has for us. And again, we've talked about that already. I don't want to beat a dead horse. What that verse, 20, Jeremiah 29, 11, is so popularly taken out of context to say, because if you read it in, in the NIV, it says that um, God's plans are to prosper me and not to harm me, to give me hope in a future. And that's a thing people put all over their, their walls and on shirts and everything else. And that's great. But keep it in context. This promise is God calling people back out of sin. It is not a promise to just give you bling and money and houses and promotions and sports scholarships and all that kind of stuff. That's not the promise. The promise is when you seek me, you will find me. As I call you back and burn an empire down that used to control you in sin and the things of the world, now I'm going to restore you when you seek me in repentance. That's the promise. That's the promise. And it's a beautiful promise. So looking at this removal of an old empire, we even see that take place in the lives of these Israelites because we know they're in bondage. Nebuchadnezzar had, had brought them, had sieged the Judah and Jerusalem and had destroyed the temple and all their buildings and had left some of the people there but had taken the, the people that he thought would most benefit him. The ones that maybe were wise or had a lot of skills or were intelligent or were good looking or athletic or whatever the case may be. He took the ones that he thought would value him out and back to Babylon with him. And so they're under captivity from Nebuchadnezzar. So part of them being restored and removed, God has to do something, doesn't he? His promise was for 70 years and then they would be released. Well, he has to work in either a king's heart or remove a king for that to happen, doesn't he? So we see him do a little bit of both. We know if you read through chapter 4, you see him move um, in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, all right? And humble that man and, and send him out to the fields where he was just eating grass and stuff like a beast. And, 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 the, and the Bible says his, his hair became like bird feathers and his, and his nails became like claws of a bird and stuff. Isn't that gross, dude? That's what you call not taking care of yourself. And that's what this brother was brought to. He's brought from the kingdom, the palace, with all the rubies and riches. And, and, and the Lord just threw him out in the field. And he had nothing to depend on anymore except God. And the, if you read that passage, Nebuchadnezzar ended up humbling himself and saying that God is all I need. And he is God. And I worship him as a beautiful just passage of, of God just moving even in an evil king, evil person's heart so that he sees God. But then after Nebuchadnezzar was out of power, his son come in, Belshazzar, and, and we know that this guy was evil like his dad started out, but the difference is he didn't listen or seek God. And he would not humble himself. He stayed in his pride and his arrogance and his worldliness. And the Bible says that he even took the articles that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and they destroyed it. And he used them to drink wine and have this big feast and party, basically to get drunk and to worship other gods. He was mocking God and the stuff out of the temple. And so he paid the price because 70 years were about to come to an end and God had to move in somebody's heart. And so... Belshazzar didn't allow himself to be humble, so he was slain. And you catch that in the end of chapter 5 of Daniel. And then this guy moved in named Darius, the Bible says, and took over there at the end of chapter 5. So then that leads us to chapter 6 because you're saying, Brad, why are we talking about this? I thought we were in Ezra, man. Why are we talking all this? Because this has everything to do with Ezra, Okay. All right, we have to know what God is stirring and doing before we go into this book and see the people come back. Because we know in our first passage there that it also said that this was the first year of Cyrus of Persia in Ezra 1. Do you remember that? Okay, so let's look at this first year of Cyrus of Persia. If you go back in history and you see that around 539 B.C. is when Cyrus conquered Babylon. All right? He come in, took it over, killed old uh, Belshazzar, took over, and here we are around 539 B.C. So we know 539 to 538 is around the first year of Cyrus. So that gives you a little picture of where we're at kind of in Ezra. 
Also around this time, we know, because right after Belshazzar was killed, the Bible says in chapter 5 of Daniel that Darius took reign. So was it Darius or was it Cyrus of Persia? All right, if you are like me and you take the Bible literally and believe it, I believe it was both. Now, whether Cyrus took over and then appointed Darius, who knows? Or maybe as Daniel was, was writing this book that he referred to Cyrus as, um, as Darius, which was a common name to, to give a king at a time. Whatever, okay, that doesn't matter. That's, that's for the Bible trivia geeks out there, okay? Y'all can spend hours and hours and hours debating that. I'm in the fourth quarter. I'm worried about winning people to Jesus and making disciples, okay? So you can debate that stuff all day long. That's not for me, and that's not what we're going to do. But I believe the Bible. I believe there was Darius and there was Cyrus of Persia because if you look in Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, the Bible says Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. All right? So if you look these separated out, and some scholars believe that Darius, his reign was somewhere around 538 and on. So we're getting this time frame put together. This is what I want you to see. We have Cyrus of Persia reigning in the first year. Ezra's coming in. We have Darius taking over after Belshazzar left. All right. And then you move into Daniel chapter 6. This king Darius loved this dude named Daniel. You can read that in the first part of chapter 6, all right? And we see and we know the picture of Daniel in the lion's den and that, and that story. So this is what I want you to see. When it starts to say in this passage that we just read in Ezra that God stirred the heart of Cyrus. This is why we went through all this. How did God stir the heart of Cyrus, you think? Could he do it on his own? Absolutely, he could. So that could be part of it. But I want you to see everything that's taking place right here. And I want you to see why the Bible, I believe, says Cyrus's heart was stirred. Cyrus was here in charge as well as Darius. We just went through Daniel and the lion's den. We've seen Daniel, when a decree was made by Darius to pray to nobody else but him. And Daniel found out about it. What did Daniel do? Did he go hide in the closet? Did he act like he was washing his dishes and, and while he prayed so they wouldn't know he was really praying? What did he do? Do open the windows toward Jerusalem and got on his knees and prayed before a holy God like he did, the Bible says, three times a day. He didn't change one thing. He wanted to know and everybody to know that he worshipped God. He paid the price for that in a godless culture. We know what happened. Thrown in the lion's den, but it's a beautiful thing, man. Dude got thrown down in the hole with the, kid, with the big cats, and what happened? Nothing. I want you, and the Bible doesn't give us any description, and I wish it did. I bet Daniel was down there. Think about it. When, when, you're, when you're around a cat like a, or any kind of animal that's not like hungry and, and vicious at the time, what's it do? Comes up to you. It's curious, right? I bet that big cat, man, or those cats were sniffing Daniel, probably licking him. They probably rolled over. He probably gave him a belly rub. You know what I'm saying? Probably even did a little wrestling, like play wrestling with them. I bet it was awesome to see what God did down there. He probably even took a little nap on the, on, the, on the head of the cat. But then when Darius come and said, Daniel, you're alive, he's like, yes. So your God saved you. He brought him up. And then he threw all the other people in that had come against Daniel, and they were devoured before they even hit the ground. Beautiful picture of God. And then what did Darius do? Darius made a decree that they were going to only worship who now? The one and only true God. So who else was there that we just learned about besides Darius? What other king? Cyrus. Do you think that moved that brother too? You daggum right it did. If it moved Darius to make that decree, Cyrus' heart was moved by the Lord. Hey, I want you to see this. God uses people to shine his light and stir and move hearts. Make no mistake about it. We also learned how Daniel, even back, going back to the wise men, how Daniel's influence was likely the, the, the influence that was uh, over these wise men, these, these uh, uh people that were satraps and everybody there that they had learned about God because Daniel making a stand in a godless culture. So we see the, the heart of Cyrus stirred likely because right at the same time as when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, he, Darius had made a decree and the Lord had stirred in Cyrus's heart. Isn't that a beautiful how the Bible comes alive? 
I mean, when you look back at history and you put everything together and you see the Bible just, just pop and how God uses things. So God was stirring the king's heart. But then, as we saw in, in verse 5, God was moving in people's hearts too. And of course, the people that were there at the time, they also, I'm sure, heard of Daniel and the lion's den and the situation. And so you see God now at the end of this 70-year period start to move in people's heart to begin to call his people back to repentance. They had spent their time in captivity to pay for their iniquities, and God was calling them back out. So as we look and, and we know and see now God stirring in the king's heart, very likely he's using this same scenario to stir in people's heart. What else was taking place that was maybe causing God to stir and move in people's heart? Yeah, I'm sure they were kind of remorseful over their sin and the situation they were in. But let's look at one other thing, something that we just read and talked about within this same scenario. We said Daniel did what three times a day? He prayed. How do you think he prayed? Because the Bible says in that scenario that when they went back and told Darius what he's doing, he said, he's asking God for help. Help for what? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Let's see what he was praying. Sears, very likely, what he was praying and what they meant by he's asking God for help. Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 and then 17 through 19. And the Bible says this. In the first year of Darius. Who? Darius. What time frame are we talking about? That same time frame, baby. Right around Daniel and the lions. Here, right around all this. I want you to see that. So in this first year of Darius, the son of Asherus and the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Did you catch that? Daniel's reading the books. What books? Scripture. He was spending time in God's word, and he knew God's word, and he knew what the promise was. He knew God's promise for his people, and he knew 70 years was coming. So he started to think, man, it's really time to get on my knees and pray for God to move in these people's hearts and to call them back to him. That's what God was using Daniel to pray and intercede for. That's why it was so important to Daniel to fall on his knees three times a day, regardless of what decree Darius had made, because he was trying to intercede for God's people. To come to repentance. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and, ash, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. Who has sinned? He said, we. Oh, you mean he ain't just, he ain't just worried about and calling out the, the brother's sins? He's calling out himself too? It's a beautiful picture. He says, we have done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts and your judgments, neither have we needed your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O oh Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. 
And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. Guys, that's a prayer and it continues. Do you see the heart of a repentant prayer? Have you ever prayed like that? Has the Lord ever stirred in your heart? And this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. I'm not talking about stirred in your heart in some super, superficial kind of, you know, materialistic way. I'm talking about has he stirred in your heart to draw you into complete and total repentance and surrender to him? Because it happens at salvation, and then I'm going to tell you right now, it continuously should happen day in and day out in the life of a believer as he calls you to sanctification. Yes, you are justified through faith and not by works right? It's through faith in Christ alone. It's a free gift of him. That's what Ephesians tells us. Yes, you're justified, but that's not where God wants to leave you. Because if you read the rest of that verse in Ephesians, it also says that you are God's craftsmanship. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to walk in, to do. So there's, there's sanctification after that. After you're not just saved and then sit on your hands the rest of your life and, and have some kind of private faith that you keep to yourself and you don't ever learn the word of God and you don't ever let the word of God stir and move you towards sanctification. No, that's not salvation. That's not it. It's walking and moving and trusting and living with a holy God, knowing day in, day out that we all fall short of his glory and our heart and our prayer should be, Lord, move in me. Daniel said, we... This is a guy who just stood up for Jesus, for God, in a godless culture and used, and God used him to, for the king to make a decree and stir in hearts. And he's sitting here saying, we. Do you see the humility in that? Can you see that? He's not just pointing out the people that caused him to be in captivity himself when he had nothing to do with it. It was, he wasn't the one worshiping other gods. He wasn't the one doing everything against his law. Daniel was doing everything right, but he was brought into captivity just like the ones who had sinned. Wouldn't you think it'd be time for him to be like, God, you better deal with these people, man. You better, you better make sure their heart's right because they're going to hell if they don't get right. You see, he wasn't just worried about other people's sin. He was also consumed with his own sin. How about you and me? It's so easy to point and look out at the sin of the world and just get really angry and mad at the things that they're causing to happen in this world through evil kings and evil um, dictators and things that are coming into this world with things like abortion and, and you know, the, the sanctity of marriage being lost and everything else that we're seeing because of the evil in the heart of man. It's easy for us to call out other people's sin, but how about ours? Are we just as moved and annoyed and disgusted by our own sin as we are the sin of the world? We should be, Daniel was. He said, we. And if you read on, we'll read verses 17 through 19 here. But then if you read verse 20, you, you see this brought out. He says, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin. It wasn't just the sin of this people. He was worried about his own. And in verse 17 through 19, he reads on. He said this with his continued prayer. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear to hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. That's beautiful. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? That'd be a great lesson to learn and meditate on and look at that. And Lord, teach me how to pray. How do I pray this prayer of, of repentance and turn to you? Man, it's beautiful right there. Daniel gives a great example. But did you catch that at the end of verse 19? Your people who are called by your name. Does that sound familiar to you from another passage that this dude Ezra probably wrote? 
How about 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14? You ever heard that verse before? I bet you have. Let's read verses 13 through 15 in that chapter. 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 15. The Lord says, When I shut up the heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name, remember what Daniel just prayed, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. Beautiful where God's coming to Solomon after he had built the, the temple the first time and, and dedicated it to him and Lord speaking, saying in advance, hey, there's going to come a time where things are going to get tough and I'm going to punish my people because of their sin and they're turning from me. But if they will repent, if they'll fall on their face and they will call to me and they will repent and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will hear their land and then I will hear their prayers. Did you catch that part? Man, what, 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 a, what a beautiful part to not miss. My eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. Gives the picture that before it wasn't because their heart wasn't repentant. Their heart wasn't in the right place. And I'm sure people were praying, right? In captivity and not where they wanted to be. I'm sure they, oh, Lord, take me out of this mess, especially at first, right? This is horrible. I want to leave. I'm so sorry. But the Lord knew they really weren't. They were sorry where they were because they didn't like the captivity, but they were not yet seeing the big picture of repentance in their heart. How many times has that been me? How many times has that been you? Where we were in situations that we didn't want to be in, and the Lord was trying to use circumstances and situations to bring us to repentance. And we just wanted out of the tough times. But the Lord was trying to do something in our heart and our life through it. That's where God was trying to move in the Israelites' heart for these 70 years. And I guess he knew it would take that long for their heart to really be repentant, to see where they needed to come back to. So God started to move in people's hearts. We know that, you know, referring to the Second Chronicles passage, so many people take this out of context as well, because this is specifically speaking to the Israelites, all right? And Solomon at the time would know that this was a reiteration of God from the passage back in Deuteronomy 28 where God made a promise, a covenant relationship with Israel, okay? So, so many people take this out of context and try to extrapolate this on the United States of America. Let me tell you what, we can't do that because we are not in a covenant relationship with God like Israel was, okay? It is. What do you mean by that, Brad? What do you mean by that? All right, God is calling his people as a whole to repentance right here. I want you to see that. Not just a remnant, okay? So the extrapolation for America is if we as a Christian remnant, because I don't know if you notice or not, we're not the majority anymore. If you truly believe the word of God, all right, you're a truly authentic follower of Jesus and you believe that this word is the inerrant, infallible word of God, you're not just 50% anymore like the world says, oh, there's 50% Christians. No, there's not. not uh-uh. No, there's not. The ones that truly believe the word of God and stand for him, I guarantee you, is way less. How can you say that, Brad? I can say that through scripture. So many times as the Bible says in Matthew 7, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to enter my kingdom because many are going to come to me on that day and say, but Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons, perform miracles? He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's people in the church. That's even people standing up preaching in churches. That's some scary stuff. So where's your heart? Where's your heart? Because God knows the heart. So we know that we're talking about a remnant of America. So the remnant that prays and wants restoration of our nation and for abortion to be abolished and for the sanctity of marriage to, to, to once again be um, just glorified and praised and, and, and set forth in our nation. We know that there's a remnant that want that, but there's a majority now that does not. So if we as a remnant Yes, we should repent and seek God's face and repent and do all that. But there's no promise, no covenant promise from God that if you and I do that, that he's going to change the United States of America and our government. Just want to just let you see that, okay? That this promise is, is to be kept in context for the Israelites and cannot be extrapolated out. If the majority of America did that, man, I'm sure God would really move, okay? But God punishes sin, and so many times, God gives the nation a king that reflects the heart of the nation. And we know the majority of our nation is turning away from God. 
So thus we have a lot of the problems that we see. So what does that mean? That means it's a great time to be like Daniel, to make a stand in a godless culture and watch God stir in people's hearts and move. Man. So we see from this passage, even in 2 Chronicles, that it, there's this point that says, now, once this happens, once this repentance, once this heart of change occurs, once I, I stir in people's heart and they respond to me, now I will hear from heaven and heal their land. I will listen to their prayers made in this place. Have you ever prayed and not felt like God was listening? Have you ever done that? Why does God seem silent Sometimes. I'm going to tell you, there's some times where God is silent because he just wants to see us take a step of faith. And it doesn't necessarily mean there's anything going wrong, any type of sin in our life or anything else. But God is just wanting us to continue with what he's already told us to do. So God's silence doesn't always mean his absence. But there are very biblical times where God's silence means there's a fellowship, a connection line broke. What would that be? Sin. The Bible is very clear that sometimes due to pride, selfishness, sin, and disobedience, that God doesn't hear our prayers because our heart's not right. We've seen that here with these Israelites. It's also reflected in Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 2. And the Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Very biblical. So God longs for the heart that's repentant and is ready to turn to him. We see the same thing that, um, in a sense, what else can, can separate and, and feel where we feel like God is, is not silent or doesn't move or answer our prayers. And we know that doubt is one of them. James chapter 1, verse 6 alludes to this. says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God, who gives generously without finding fault, the Bible says. All right, it says, and then when we ask, we should believe and not doubt, because the man who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. And the Bible says, that man should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, because he is double-minded and unstable in all he does. Man. So when we pray, we, we, there should really be an, an attitude of faith in our heart, absolutely, and not doubt. Because if there's doubt, we shouldn't expect God to move in any way for what we had asked him to do. And then sometimes it's our motives. Sometimes our motives can, can keep us from having God answer our prayers Again, in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, I want to read that passage. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you but do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. Get this. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Does God know your heart or what? God knows your motives of why you do what you do, why you want to do what you want to do, why you even, maybe if, and so many times it's so important that God calls you to ministry because too many people call themselves. And when people call themselves, there's a motive in their heart for something. It's either power, most times, is money. And God knows the motives of a man's heart. And you can't hide. And you can't mock God. And a man's going to reap what he sows, Galatians says. Let's continue reading that passage in James 4 because it gets really, it's really tight here. James says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Praise God for that. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. There's that seeking part, remember? 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. There is a beautiful passage of repentance and what it looks like to truly turn to God. Have you done that? I mean, just over your own sin, even like Daniel. You may say, well, I'm a good person, and man, I, I follow the Lord, and there's really nothing wrong going on in my life. I don't worship idols, and, and I'm not living in adultery and, and all these other things like the world does. They're way worse than I am, so they need to help, not me. You better watch that arrogant, prideful attitude. And look at what Daniel did when he said we, and he prayed for forgiveness of his own sins. The other people that were the ones in idolatry and doing everything wrong, he was standing for the Lord, but he still knew he was a sinner. And he needed the grace of his Savior. How about you? James is very clear. We can't be friends with the world and think for one minute that we're living in Christ. Because the Bible is clear. Friendship with the world. That means living in worldliness and patterns and seeking just the things of the world. And that's where our heart is, that that separates us still from God. Too many people walk in and out of church stores every Sunday and there's too much, too close, too many friends with the world. But they think they're going to see God. But they haven't fallen on their knees in repentance and turned and given their whole heart and life to Christ. And we know that 2 Peter 3, very clear, as the Lord calls people back to return so that a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years are like a day says the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness instead he's patient with you he's not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance I'm going to tell you right now if God wasn't patient all this would be done already this world be over but God is patient because why? Because he, his will is that all that would come to repentance, even though we know the large majority won't. But his will is still that he's calling people. He's trying to stir in our hearts to call us back to him. As we close, I want to move us into a, a teaching on fasting because I want us to look at Daniel chapter 9, that passage we read. And when we look in verse 3 of that passage in Daniel chapter 9, it says this, says, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications. We've read that prayer, all right? And then it also says this, Daniel says, with fasting. What is fasting? We're going to talk about that. And then he says, sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes was a uh, representation of mourning and being broken over your sin and a, um, over your own depravity. And it was a penitence, a, a regret that leads to repentance, which is that changed behavior through Christ and through the Spirit of God moving in us. So it showed humility before God. But then we want to look at fasting. And this is why I want to look at it, because what prayer for the Lord is leading us to do, I believe that I want to start us on, starting tomorrow, is a 21-day fast as a church. And so what we're going to do is take this time to learn about fasting and, and then prayerfully consider, Lord, today, what would you have me starting tomorrow to fast for you, that I could focus, that I could pray, and that I could seek you, all right? So what we're going to do is, and we'll see, is fasting sometimes could be food-related. Most oftentimes it was in Scripture, but it doesn't have to be. Maybe it could be something that you regularly go to in your life that maybe takes up a lot of your time that you want to give up, and then during that time where you would usually go to that Facebook to scroll or where you would go and sit down and, and watch Netflix or whatever, whatever you choose to fast, that you now spend that time in prayer and seeking God, whatever that is. We know all through Scripture we see fasting, oftentimes from food, and, and anything that's given up really temporarily is meant to be a fast to focus on God. So fasting will be for a short period of time, we see biblically, all right, for a time of seeking God and seeking a closer relationship with Him. It's not intended to, to punish the flesh, or it's definitely not intended to be something that you use for a diet, all right? Some people might be like, okay, well, good. I was thinking about losing weight in the new year here anyway, so I guess I'll give up my fast food and my sodas. No. No, go back to the heart and to the motive of why you're doing what you're doing. Are you really doing this to seek God? 
Because if you give up something, it's going to be something that you now in turn, every time you have that, that craving, that thirst, or that time where you would generally go to this thing, whatever it is that the Lord leads you to, you now seek Him. A lot of biblical examples um, about how people can fast and uh, maybe some people can't fast food because you're a diabetic, okay? That's where you can prayerfully consider, Lord, what would you have me do? Maybe you fast Facebook. Maybe you fast whatever, okay? Um, doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be food. We even have biblical examples in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where the Bible is very clear and it's talking about um, intimate physical relationship between a husband and wife. It says don't deprive each other from each other except for a, an agreed time to fast and pray, all right? So there's a biblical example of that, and all the husbands are saying, honey, we ain't doing that one, all right? But anyway, move on. So we're taking our eyes off the things of this world, and we're looking to be focused with our attention on Christ. And that's the picture that I want to give you with fasting. And we don't do it in a way that we boast about it so that we try to look more spiritual before others. Matthew chapter 6, 16 through 18 says, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So this is not a show. This is not to, to make somebody think that you're extra super spiritual and somebody's, oh, I've never fasted. Oh, honey, you got to do it. No, 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 no. That's not what this is. This is a honest, what we've talked about before, falling on our knees and seeking God in some fashion for however he leads. So I ask you again, has the Lord stirred in your heart? Has the Lord stirred in your heart lately? How have you responded as he's called? There's been a lot of chaos going on in our world the past couple years. And, you, and we all have felt it unless you've lived in a cave somewhere. And it goes without saying that God is using all this, I believe, to stir in our hearts. Has he stirred in your heart? Has he called you through this to a deeper understanding of who he is? Is he calling you to, to turn from the things in this world? Maybe you were innocently and didn't even know it, so dependent on the things of this world. You were so dependent on everything just being open, on everything just doing everything and, and, and the finances. And, and maybe you were getting way too dependent on the world. And God has used this to rock your world to open your eyes so that you could seek him and to have more of an eternal mindset and less of a temporal mindset. So what are ways that we most commonly see with fasting? And where would God lead us to focus as we fast? We know as we've seen with Daniel and even in Nehemiah that they fasted and prayed that God would have mercy upon people. That we have been wicked, we have rebelled, we have turned away from God's commands. So maybe God would have you as you fast and pray to, to pray for, yes, our country, our nation, our leaders to turn back to God. Yes, that's beautiful, all right, as long as we keep it in context and know that it's not no promise that if we do, God's going to restore the United States of America. That's not it, okay? But it, we do still need to pray for that, for God to, to move, for people to hum, humble themselves and pray. But how about your own righteousness? Maybe God would stir in your own heart and in your own soul to, Lord, whatever it is in me, Lord, would you search me and know my ways, Psalm 139 says. Search my heart, know my thoughts, and remove in me anything that's not of you and that's of me and is of this world. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to look and to pray as you fast. Several instances in the Old Testament is linked to intercessory prayer where David prayed and fasted over his sick child in 2 Samuel 12 and he wept before the Lord in earnest intercession. We know Esther urged Mordecai and the Jews to fast for her as she planned to go before her husband. So we see clearly that fasting is often linked with petition and going before the Lord. So what type of intercession would maybe the Lord lead you to pray as you fasted? Maybe it's intercession over your marriage, intercession over your uh, a wayward child, 
child or a, or a lost family member or a, or a close friend that, that God would intercede on, on their behalf and, and call them to repentance. Maybe you would pray for intercession over this church and I pray you word that God would move and, and continue to do his work amongst this place where, where miraculously somehow for two years now we've been planning a church in Forest, Virginia without running water. Not a third world country, guys. We're in Forest, Virginia planting a church with no running water for two years stuck in a field. That's Jesus. Would you continue to pray for his intercession like he's been faithful to do? Another way that we see fasting used in in the church and through the New Testament is at Antioch where they prayed and fasted and they placed hands on uh, Paul and Silas, on on Paul and Barnabas rather, where, where they were going off. And we see these examples from prayer and fasting as components of worship and seeking God's favor. Maybe you pray for God's favor to continue in your marriage, in your home, on this church. So just many examples biblically of ways to fast. But what is this bigger picture? So we see the critical situation for fasting and prayer, especially when demon is cast out by Jesus. And you can go through the Gospels. We don't have time to read that account. But the disciples, if you remember that story, were unable to cast out a demon, right? of a boy and, and they and they went and and they were unable to do so and Jesus had to come in and then and he cast the demon out and they asked Lord why couldn't we do that and Jesus said this kind only comes out by prayer in the mark and then if you go to the Matthews account by prayer and fasting so what's the significance of that and this is what I believe it is that Jesus seems to be saying that a determined enemy that's trying to destroy and overtake must be met with an equally determined faith. How serious are you about getting serious about God? That's where I want you to focus as you fast. That this is a seriousness of repentance, of seeking God. Because we know even the Bible says when talking about demons that once a demon comes in, he's cast out. He goes around arid places seeking for somewhere to rest. And if he comes back, he says, let's return to the house where we were, meaning your life. And if he comes back and that house is all placed in order where God's tried to clean it up and and do his work in your life, but you invite that same demon back in through sin and an unrepentant heart, the Bible says that he brings with him seven demons more wicked than himself, and the condition of that man is worse than when he started. Maybe that's where you need to get serious and on your knees and pray. And meet your enemy with a more serious faith to remove something that maybe is an addiction that's been in control of you where you don't feel like you're in control of yourself anymore and something's been controlling you maybe it's alcohol maybe it's drugs maybe it's pornography and maybe you need to get those chains broken right now because there's been seven demons more wicked than the first one that had come and got in your life and you've invited it back in and you need it broken You need restoration with a holy God who wants to move in your life and restore you and redeem you. And he's stirring in your heart right now and calling you back. That's where you want to fast and pray. I would even suggest as you fast that maybe if it is alcohol or drugs or or an image or a movie on a computer screen, whatever it is, I suggest you fast that. You say, cold turkey, I'm not going to that one time for 21 days and I'm seeking God every time I have a desire. That'd be a great way to fast. And watch God go to work in your life. So, we're here and we're ready to see God. I believe he's stirring. I believe he's stirring into hearts of people. And he's ready to call you and me back to a deeper, more authentic faith and walk with him. Every single one of us. And as we pray, like Daniel set the example, with fasting and prayer, praying we. Pray for our nation. Pray for your brothers and sisters. But pray for yourself. And let God do his work in your life. For some of us, it's time to stop sitting at tables that Jesus would flip over if he were here. I want you to think about that. Have you been sitting at a table too long that you know God wouldn't have you sit at? You need to move away, pray and fast. I love what Dennis Kinlaw said in a quote I want to read to you. Because so many people would say, well, I'm not in some kind of deep man sin or whatnot and I'm not really you know needing to 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 feel this repentant heart and coming closer to God can I read this for you so from Dennis Kinlaw he says Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal autonomy he never asks us to become his servants 
Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. The shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It is always from Christ to self. And instead of his will, self-interest now rules and what I want reigns. And that is the essence of sin. So in understanding that, if you've been living for yourself, doing what you want to do, or if you've been truly seeking God and what he wants you to do, come to Christ in fasting and prayer and repentance. I'm going to tell you right now, the gospel is more about sin and redemption from sin than it is about stopping certain sins. Can I tell you that? The Bible doesn't come at you and come at me with stop this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It doesn't come at specific sins. Yes, it's very specific on what is sin. Don't get me wrong. But overall, what the gospel is calling you to is a nature that needs to be changed. Not just specific do's, do this, do this, do that. Do. Because we can all set a New Year's resolution. Well, I'm going to stop doing this and do this and whatever. That's all great. But have you set a resolution for your nature, your heart to be changed? Because this is what God knows. If you let him in and you let him radically change you, he will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. That's Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. He'll give you a desire to follow his ways. That means he gives you a new nature. And then you don't have to worry about the specific sins and this and that. God will do the work of cleaning that up if you let him have your heart and your life today. That's the gospel. So as we pray and as we seek him and as we start a 21-day fast tomorrow, pray what God would have you do. Give up to seek him for a more deep, authentic relationship and a closer walk with him. What is it? And we'll start that tomorrow together for the next 21 days. But ultimately, know this. Take this word right here that we've learned today. Know that God is stirring in the hearts of people. He's stirring in your heart. He's stirring in my heart. And he's calling us to something, church. He's calling us to something that he wants to do through us, just like he did through his servant Daniel. And how many people he affected. Even the hearts of kings were stirred because of one man that made a stand for Jesus. What could God do through you starting in 2022 if you made a stand for Christ like you never have before? You made a stand for his word like you never have before. What can he do in your family? What can he do in your work? What can he do in your school? What can he do in this church? And what can he do in Forest, Virginia if you and I made a stand for him? Let's bow our head. Right now, let's close our eyes. And I want to know today, first and foremost, is there anybody here that you've never accepted Jesus as Lord of your life? I want you to do it today before you walk back out of this place. Or maybe you're here and you say, Brad, I've, I've walked in and out of church doors. And I, at one time, I'd, re, I'd committed my life to Christ. And man, there was a time I was on fire for the Lord and, and really living for him. But man, lately I've drifted. I've walked away. And man, it's been a slow trickle away. But man, I'm so far away. And I want to come running back to him right now today. I want to come running back in repentance, just like, just like God calling these Israelites back, stirring in their heart. The Lord's been stirring in my heart, and I'm ready to come back today. If that's you, I want you to pray the same prayer from your heart to God's heart. Mean business with him and rededicate your life to him. So to accept Christ for the first time or to rededicate your life, to say from your heart to God's heart and be business with him. Say, dear Lord, I admit to you that I'm a sinner and I'm in need of you, my Savior. Lord, I've messed it up. I've lived for myself, the things of this world, and it separated me from you. And today, God, I want to make a change. I'm running to the cross and I'm falling on knees in repentance and surrender to you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross, God in the flesh, that I could have forgiveness of my sin, that his body was beaten and his blood was shed for me. And Lord, thank you for raising him from the grave three days later, proving that he is God in all victory over hell, death, and the grave. And Lord, I want to claim that same victory right now in my life, Lord, because I need it. And Lord, my commitment to you right now is that you have all of me. I surrender my will to your will. That you come in and change my heart. Give me a new nature. 
And Lord, set me on the path of your righteousness through your word, through the power of your spirit. And Lord, my commitment to you is to use my life for your glory from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you meant business with God today. In this place or maybe online, sitting on your couch. I won't see you on your couch, obviously, but that's okay because God will see you. If you prayed that prayer right now today, you meant business with God. You received him for the first time or you rededicated your life to him today. Forget the person around you or whatever's going on right now. I want you to boldly and unashamed make that stand for Jesus. Raise your hand. Say, Brad, I prayed that prayer. I meant business with God today, receiving it for the first time, or rededicating my life to him. Amen. All right, everybody, can we give Jesus a big round of applause for everything he continues to do through his word and moving in our hearts and make an impact for Jesus? We'll see you next Sunday. Thanks again for joining us today. The Lord is truly doing an amazing work and we would love for you to be a part of it. Check out the show notes for links to our website and social media pages. Or if you're ever in the Lynchburg or Forest, Virginia area, please come on by and join us in making an impact for Christ. Christ.